My name is Bruce and I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me over there? Because I, I can talk pretty loud without a microphone. <laughs> and, um, I am frightened out of my mind. And, uh, I, yeah, poor baby. <laughs> I, uh, when you speak, it's hard to start, but it's uh, also hard to stop. Okay. <laughs> And I know you all want to get out of here, and I've heard that uh, no one ever criticized a speaker in A for talking too, too short a time, and um, you'd probably be delighted if I kept this down to five minutes and just told you how afraid I was. <laughs> I'm still not warmed up. I'm not ready for this. Uh, I, um, I want to thank uh, Helen for asking me here, and uh, that was very kind of you. And uh, uh, I've been in Cincinnati once before uh, and talked at uh, Rule 62 uh, three years ago. And uh, is Liz here today? Uh, Liz called me. You know, I was asked when I was getting breakfast, and I'll tell this again on Liz. Uh, I, uh, if I was on the speaker circuit, I'm not. I came to Cincinnati three years ago by a total accident because Liz called me and said, is your name, she said, is this Bud or somebody? And I said, no. I said, my name is Bruce. And she said she was calling Bud in South Carolina and North Carolina. <laughs> and uh, I said, you got the wrong number. And uh, she said, well, are you a friend of Bill W's? And I thought, what? Uh, usually somebody's asking me if I've got MCI or something. You know? <laughs> And I got a little on guard, and I said, yeah, I am. She said, you'll do. <laughs> and I... This is true. <laughs> uh, I thought this is a kooky lady that had too much to drink in Cincinnati, you know. And, uh, so she told me she'd have somebody else call me. So somebody else did. John, I don't know if he's here. Um, he called me about a week later, and I said, that's the strangest telephone call I ever got in my life. Are you for real? He said, sure. I said, you don't know me, and you don't know anything about me. He said, it doesn't matter to us as long as you don't drink. And so I, I said, I promised him I wouldn't because it was several months away. And uh, I, so I tried to stay sober for the next six months, and I came out here. I brought a pen to make sure we didn't stop anywhere and drink on the way. And uh, I talked to Rule 62, and I was just as nervous then as I am today. And I, I am not a circuit speaker. Uh, I... Uh, I talked in Cincinnati once, you know, and uh, <laughs> and it was quite an event. And, and so, several of you are still here, and uh, Ron Roy uh, over here. I remember. I remember a lot of your faces. Uh, you remember me a lot better than I remember you because I'm standing here talking. And um, Cincinnati's a nice place. I like it here, and uh, it's. Uh, am I getting warm? But I get feeling a little more comfortable. I brought some of them with me this time too, and I just embarrassed him. Uh, he celebrated last week uh, three years sobriety, uh, Alex. And uh, and the remarkable thing about Alex is that he's not old enough to drink legally yet. <laughs> Which I think is kind of nice, you know. <laughs> it's about time we got some of these teenagers in here and shaped them up. Because they're really making fools out of all of us. <laughs> um, the countdown is kind of interesting, you know. 
uh, everybody pretends uh, that they don't count. <laughs> and there's a person in this room that doesn't know the minute that they stop drinking. <laughs> of course we count, <laughs> because it's terribly important. And I think the, these countdowns are wonderful to see sober lives. Uh, uh, look at the people here this morning. I, uh, I asked if I was supposed to wear, in Scranton we don't ever wear coats and ties. And uh, I said, uh, I asked <laughs> uh, if I was supposed to wear a coat and tie, and I, and, uh, I was told that Mary Ann said it would probably be appropriate. But how nice you all look. The women look nicer. Uh, you just don't look like the butterflies you used to be. You know? it's a, you're all dressed and washed and smell good this morning. And it's, a, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I, um, I, as you can tell, I have nothing to say. I, I, but you're paying for the hotel. So, you know, that was another thing. I checked into the hotel yesterday with Alex. We were staying there at the county. They said, are you with a group? And we had just been uh, met by some lady with adopted uh, uh, children uh, asking uh, where the meeting was because they thought we were going to adopt children, I think, or something. And the lady at the counter said, uh, are you with a group? And I said, yeah. She said, what group? And I said, oh, should I tell her? Okay, I'll tell her. I'm with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is meeting here tomorrow morning. And she said, oh, like, wherever they are. And so Alex asked the lady if there was anything to do here. And she said, there's a ton of bars nearby. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think anybody understands except ourselves what alcoholics are. I, you know, my family has no comprehension. I was just on somebody at breakfast. Uh, my, I have a fairly large family, and there's only one other alcoholic in the family. My nephew, he's sober for 12 years. Uh, they're so afraid when we're together at Thanksgiving or something to mention beer because they think we're going crazy. So... <laughs> My nephew David and I go out into the gar garage and talk about what we do in AA because my, my brother and my sister-in-law, none of the family can understand or comprehend anything about this organization. Uh, why do you keep on going? You know, well, I guess if it's something to do. Like, why don't you get a life? Uh, I told my sister when I was coming out here uh, three years ago to Cincinnati, she said, what are you going out there for? And I said, they've asked me, you know, Liz, for reasons I don't understand, to speak. And she said, what in the world would you speak about? <laughs> and have you ever thought about that, what you tell your family? You know, how you puked and then you found God. Which is uh, pretty much the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I carry. I have a big book with me because uh, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I would be. Uh, I, I would feel like I was standing here naked without my book. I, I really like my book, and uh, I think it was inspired by God. And uh, I, I have used the book. Uh, uh, as I uh, develop relationships with newcomers uh, ever since I got sober because when I first got sober uh, uh, this is in uh, as you all say uh, <laughs> out in Denver I got sober in Denver and uh, Boulder I had my last drink and every group in the country does something a little bit different and out there people would start the meetings years ago by saying but for the grace of God and the fellowship of this program I have not had the recent issues to take a drink for the last 275 days <laughs> And I, I, my first meeting, I would listen to these people all saying these things. And here you, you tell about your sponsor and where you got sober and all the other. And uh, other places don't say anything. Because uh, they say the person who got up earliest this morning has got the longest sobriety of anybody in the room. So they, they, <laughs> they pretend they're not counting, you know. <clears throat> but I'm counting, I'll tell you. And, uh, I, 
because I remember that last drink I took. It was awful. It was just awful. I mean, they took me. I went out in the street and I got arrested for public intoxication, which I thought that's so you know degrading. It's embarrassing. And uh, they put me in jail. It was awful. And I uh, I sold myself and I I wasn't happy. I was miserable. <laughs> and I had been in jail before. You know. Uh, uh, the first time I went to jail, I was picked up for drunken vagrancy here in Ohio in Toledo. Uh, I was 17 years old, and I thought that was the most wonderful thing that ever had happened to me. To tell my friends that I'd been in the Toledo jail, you know, wow, you know. To take that story to the bar was just more than, you know. I finally had some recognition because I didn't do anything else in my life except drink successfully. And... Uh, that's, that was really the story of my life. I started drinking when I was 14 years old. I come from a town near Syracuse. Uh, uh, it used to have a military school, and uh, fortunately they've closed it, so nobody has to go there anymore. My, my father was the coach there, so he was able to get me a scholarship to, uh, when I was 13 years old to go off to this uh, institution with uh, all these rich delinquents, and uh, I could stay there and live there, and I never lived at home again after that. And uh, if I worked in the kitchen for four years, I could uh, be privileged to be among all those uh, people. And I started. Uh, you know, it was a it was a pretty painful experience uh, for anyone getting into adolescence, but for me it seemed un, uh, unusually raw. There were only about eight of us that were 13 years old, and we just got the you know, nonsense beat out of us uh, day after day after day. I didn't like. It there. My father told me that I should stay there so that I could learn how to be a man. And I thought, well, oh, if this is what it takes, who wants to be one, you know? And um, so when I got to be 14, I got, I got drunk in front of some friends, and uh, they all said, Bruce, you're drunk. And I had the most wonderful feeling because they, I was being recognized by my peers. <laughs> I could finally do something in this world successfully. And uh, so I kept on drinking for about 25 years, and uh, my drinking escapades took me all around the country. I ended up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I got married um, in a rebellion uh, to my father, who drank with me. Uh, when, after I got out of the Army, I used to visit him, and we'd get drunk together. And uh, I, I, I didn't, anything he told me I couldn't do, I would do, and anything he told me I couldn't, uh, should do, I wouldn't. And I still have that that, you know, everybody here this morning would, would probably not be here if they were told they had to come. Uh, alcoholics are kind of like that. My, I got out of the army, didn't want to be there with my father in, in that environment in upstate New York anymore, so I uh, had some money in a, a new Studebaker I'd bought in the army, and uh, I, uh, he said, I, 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 we were arguing about something that didn't matter, and I said I was going to Portland, Oregon to get away from uh, this part of the world, and I was never going to come back again. And he said, you'll never make it. So I got in my car with my $100, and I drove out to Portland, Oregon. And uh, he was right, but I couldn't call him for any money because uh, he just told me I couldn't make it on $100. I looked up a woman I'd met in the Army who I knew lived out there, and uh, she invited me over for dinner because I didn't have any money. And I had no place to stay, so I stayed with her for about three weeks. And then uh, we decided to get married. <laughs> and she was from uh, uh, Manhattan, Kansas. So she flew back home, and I sold my Studebaker, which I love so much. And uh, you can't get them anymore. <laughs> and I drove her Buick back to Manhattan, Kansas, and got married at uh, Kansas State College in uh, Manhattan, Kansas. We didn't even know each other. My parents were driving across the country from New uh, Syracuse. They were in St. Louis or someplace, so we couldn't tell them that we didn't like each other. And uh, we 
felt we had to go ahead with the wedding because these people, these strangers were coming in the car to watch us get married. And we had all these gifts and what are you supposed to do with them? So we stayed married for 17 years. <laughs> and it was not a perfect match made in heaven, believe me. Uh, she met me drunk. I stayed drunk. And uh, when I finally stopped drinking, uh, she, she didn't want any part of me anymore. And so... Uh, I wasn't funny anymore. I wasn't whatever, and she couldn't understand why I'd go. I started going to AA meetings, and she thought that was kind of kicking her in the butt socially. And I heard her in the kitchen one time telling her mother, you know, Bruce, in his sense of drama, this week he has decided to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and he's doing it just to embarrass me. <laughs> And so uh, I got sober, and uh, at first, uh, I, I really believe that there, that providence and God work in your life, even if you're cynical like I am, and, uh, and even if you don't know how to pray formally, or if you don't know really what dogma in church is all about, that doesn't deny me access to God in my life. Uh, the last uh, that last time I was in jail because I'd been drinking very badly and doing a lot of terrible things for a long time uh, that I personally was terribly ashamed of. I have a conscience, and uh, I had a message come into my consciousness while I was in jail that time. It said, "Bruce, don't drink." And I believe God talked to me then, and uh, I believe that. Uh, more strongly, as each day goes by, there's a place in the 12th uh, step that says we, having had a spiritual awakening as the singular result of taking those 11 steps that come before, I carry that message. And I used to, uh, I ask people a lot of times, what is the message you're supposed to carry? It says it right there in the step, and a lot of people can't see it. The book is so mysterious. My message is that I had a spiritual awakening because I took the 11 steps before the 12th step. I'm supposed to tell people that I had a spiritual awakening. My message is not that I'm supposed to empty ashtrays. In fact, they don't smoke in AA rooms anymore because uh, I was in one city sober and we burned the church down and churches don't like that. <laughs> and so 12 step work is carrying the message of my spiritual awakening. And you know that's one of the hardest things to do for an alcoholic, because if, and yet it's easy, because your life is different. When I was drunk, I could no more have sat next to another drunk at a bar and said, hey, hey, guess what, I, I went to AAA and had a spiritual awakening, and he buy me a drink. I can talk to you people and you know what I'm talking about, because it's a spiritual awakening that's keeping you all sober. It's keeping me sober. I believe that with a, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Bill Wilson called this the language of the heart. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the words are, but it matters enormously how we have compassion and love and understanding for each other. The last speech of Dr. Bob said that you can boil the whole AA program down to two words, love and service. And I really believe that. As a drunk, I had no capacity to love. I had to blame everybody in my life for my miserable condition. I have enormous capacity for affection and love for other people that I learned through AA. Uh, and, and it means so much to me now to uh, be able to work with somebody whose life is a terrible mis mess and, and see them start to blossom into human beings. You don't see that anywhere else except here in AA. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience that I don't think anybody would want to miss. I um, didn't, uh, I, in Boulder, and this is 31 years ago, 
uh, we didn't have a detox center in Boulder at that time. They had one about a year later. Boulder's a city of 100,000 people. There was one meeting that met twice a week. You couldn't do 90 and 90. Uh, there were only 20 people in that group. And when I, I went, I detoxed myself for about six weeks, which was probably the worst agony of my life. And I was in a friend's house. I was talking about alcohol all the time. I'd had the message in jail not to drink, so I didn't drink. And I didn't know anything about AA. And I was in a friend's house, and a, an insurance salesman came to sell him some insurance. I'd had to close my office. I'm an architect and, uh, in Denver, and because uh, I couldn't work. I, my arms felt like they were in a paralysis, and I, I was shaking all the time, and uh, you couldn't drink coffee. Uh, you, you've seen these people. Uh, they're not you, but they're, they're, they're the people who drop in day meetings every once in a while. And uh, this guy came into the house and he started, I was talking about alcohol all the time. And he said uh, to me when my friend got up to go to the gym, he said, are you an alcoholic? A total stranger asked me that question. And I thought, I've never been asked that question by anybody. Why would you, you don't say that to people. And I, I looked at him real funny. I said, uh, why did you say that to me? He said, you have the most hysterical eyes I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> he says, are you doing anything? And I said, no, because I had nothing to do. And uh he said, uh, let, leave your car here and let's take a ride down to Denver. So he took me to a place called York Street, which is the clubhouse in Denver, and um, took me to my first AA meeting. And this is in late February, or uh, March, early March of uh, 71. And at my first AA meeting, I don't know about your first AA meeting, but uh, I could not understand. You know, a lot of you uh, old-timers here say you're real alcoholics. I understand what that means today. But because uh, it's in the book, but I hadn't read any book at that point, and people were saying they were real alcoholics and they were counting their days and saying all these silly things, and uh, they looked like the uh, Harry Krishna has his headquarters in Boulder, and I, I thought this was the Supreme Council of Harry Krishna, and they were going to shave my head and put me in an orange robe and send me out at the airport to sell flowers, because. How could a group of people be talking about uh, uh, going to jail and all this other stuff and smile? You know that that AA smile. You know, I know what it is now because I probably got one myself. But uh, it's incomprehensible when I'm new. And that they said, uh, as they often do at meetings, uh, is there anyone here for their first meeting? And so the guy I was with punched me. And he, I put my hand up, and they told me, "You're the most important person in the room." And I thought, gosh, they, they've recognized this already. I, <laughs> they don't even know me, you know. And, uh, and so um, I interrupted the meeting about eight times before they told me to shut up. <laughs> you know, I haven't shut up yet. Uh, I understand now because it was explained to me that four, uh, maybe 25 people had come to sit around a table and they'd driven some distance to get there, and probably their intention was not to listen to me. Then maybe some of them had something to say as well. And uh, I thought, really? And so I finally I got a little angry and resentful, but then I learned years later that the resentment's the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And um, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't know what it was all about. But when I got back to Boulder that night, they had that one meeting, and I knew where it was. It was down on Pearl Street in Boulder, so I, it was cold, and I stood out there watching to see it. It was upstairs over Con's ready-to-wear clothing store. I wanted to see if there was anybody going in there that I knew, because I certainly didn't want to expose this affliction before I was sure I was one, you know. Uh, 
Uh, so I waited and I, I went up those stairs and I was so frightened. I was as frightened then as I am right now, uh, coming up on, the, on this podium, uh, to what is going to happen to me if I go into this meeting. Uh, and there was no way to explain it. And uh, at that time, there were 20 people up there, and there was a woman there named uh, Ruth. And she was crying, and she said, uh, I don't understand, I don't understand. I'd learned now not to talk because they told me not to talk down Denver. So I watched that woman and she was uh, she was sobbing and I felt a little bit the same way she did because uh, how could you understand uh, AA, an AA meeting when you're new is incomprehensible. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, one of the guys there said, um, you know, it got a little serious tonight, Bruce. Why don't you come back on Thursday night because it's uh, Thursday night meeting has a better sense of humor. <laughs> so I went back on Thursday night. It was exactly the same people. <laughs> And uh, except Ruth wasn't there. Uh, Ruth had committed suicide. Uh, and that the drama of that really got to me. Here's one person who didn't understand who died. And this is not, uh, you know, this is serious stuff. And I've learned over the years that AA is very serious, that if 50% of us stay sober, that's unusually high record. That means at least 50% are going to stay drunk. And of the people that I meet that come to AA meetings, there's going to be death and there's going to be devastation. There's going to be families that are totally wiped out. There's people without a job. Uh, it's the suffering that alcoholics have to go through to hit that bottom. And we've all been there. Because if we hadn't gotten to the bottom, we would never come here. And uh, we celebrate that bottom. And no one else in the world would do that except alcoholics. And we have that common understanding. Like it says in the book, we're people who normally would not mix. It is that suffering that we've all been through that, that binds us. And that we can give that, uh, the love and affection that we have for each other, we can give it to other people. Some people will be receptive to it. And when you find one that is, you know, that is such a precious relationship. And it's worth everything in my life to find something like that. It, uh, I started going to these meetings, and like I say, my wife didn't like that idea. And so uh, uh, that first year and a half I was sober were the most miserable years of my life. There's a story in the uh, third chapter about Fred. And it's quite often used as a cliche. He says that my worst day sober is better than my worst, uh, my best day drunk. Now, for me, that wasn't the case because the year and a half that I was sober, trying to understand what was going on at AA and not reading this book, and was without doubt the most miserable year and a half I ever spent in my life. Uh, I lost my family and moved to Denver and was in a rented room. I, my, I had to close my office. I had no work to do. I was uh, swilling in self-pity. I sat in the clubhouse in Denver, broke, destitute, and sick finally. At the, after about a year and a half, I got hepatitis. And the doctor, I went to the doctor, and he told me where you get hepatitis. This is just the normal one, you know, not from shooting, but uh, from eating food that's uh, contaminated. And uh, that didn't sound very nice because he told me how you contaminate food that way. And then he, he said, Bruce, I want to tell you one thing. Don't drink alcohol. I said, I, I belong to A. He said, I don't care what club you belong to. He said, don't drink. <laughs> and I was really miserable. And in the clubhouse, I said, there's a place in the middle of Denver, if you've ever been out to York, uh, York Street, because they had a, a convention there years ago. Uh, there's a grand old mansion in downtown uh, Denver, just like in uh, Minneapolis. They have the Pillsbury Mansion as the AA clubhouse. And uh, I sat there with all these losers for that year, uh, commiserating about how AA sucks and uh, we were uh, victims. And uh, uh, 
life was miserable and my wife hates me and all this other stuff and we could all uh, understand these things because we knew it uh, right up front and we'd laugh at the people every two hours they have a meeting out there and they'd come through the front door and we'd laugh at them uh, here comes Mr. Spiritual Giant number four <laughs> and they'd all uh, say things like uh, how are you doing guys <laughs> with a smile you know I knew they didn't mean it and they'd uh, they say one guy would say uh, what step are you working <laughs> you know I didn't know what the steps were uh and I'd always say 11 because that sounds high up on the scale. <laughs> and I, I was really, really miserable. Uh, the self-pity was eating me alive. And I, uh, I was in, in very serious uh, thoughts about uh, suicide because I, I knew I didn't want to drink. I, I did, that life was gone. I'd had the message that told me not to, and I believed it. I couldn't live sober. Uh, I, what are you supposed to do? I couldn't live drunk. I couldn't live sober. And this man came by one day and he said, have you had enough? And uh, yeah, I had. And I, I was willing to, to admit that much. And he gave me his card and he told me to meet him the next day. And he wanted to start going through the book with me. And we did. It took six months. I, I met him uh, once a week. And he and I read the book together uh, up to page 164. And my life started to change. And... Uh, I've been doing that uh, with people ever since. And uh, I believe, you know, if it could work for me with my cynicism, it could work for other people. Uh, right in the foreword of the uh, third edition, it says, uh, Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. My experience has showed me that I could read this book five times by myself and it means nothing. It's about a stockbroker who drank too much and screwed his life up and went to, over to Akron and met somebody. And so what? I had no idea what was in this book until someone pointed it out to me. That every step in the book has action. Every step in the book has a prayer. I didn't know that. Uh, I thought the Lord's Prayer was the A prayer, you know, because they say it at every meeting at the end of it. And uh, I wasn't familiar with prayer because I was not from a background where prayer was a part of my life. You know, now I lay me down to sleep was the only prayer I knew. And uh, I've come to understand that God as you understand him means that I can talk to my God as a friend. It tells you the relationship you could establish. He's your father or he's your boss, whatever you want it to be. Uh, and I can have that relationship uh, every waking moment of my day that I can be in that kind of relationship with my God. I can start to understand, you know, you know make fun of it, uh, of things that I used to know so well. Jimmy Cricket, sitting on your shoulder, to, I know what's right and wrong. Uh, when I was drunk, I was irresponsible, and I was ashamed of myself for a lot of what I used to do when I was drunk. I'm not ashamed of myself anymore, because I know what I'm doing. Uh, my conscience still tells me not to do some things, and I go and do it. Uh, I had a little problem a few years ago going to Atlantic City too many times, but I, I liked it. I got a rush out of it, so I don't go there anymore because I went I went bankrupt. <laughs> and there's uh, you know there's there, they they have today intervention. Uh, I don't know if you ever, any of you see Stuart Saves His Family. It's my favorite movie. Uh, you know I'm uh, uh, smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, everybody likes me. Um, but I don't need that. Uh, I don't have to look in a mirror and say those kind of things and say silly slogans. I can, uh, I can read this book uh, 
the texture and the meaning in this book, uh, First Step Prayer, we're talking about it here at breakfast, is uh, how many of you, everybody, you know, you see the blinking lights behind you and you've just tossed off a bottle of gin. You know, get me out of this one, God, and I'll never do it again. I promise, I promise. Standing before the judge, boy, get me through this one and I, I will never drink again. When you're vomiting in the morning, I promise I will never do this again. God, help me. Uh, those are prayers, and God hears those prayers, and you get through. The cop goes around you. And what do you do? You pick up the bottle and swig it again. Ah, I beat it. And you forget about him until you meet him the next time. All that AA is doing is telling me to uh, leave the alcohol out, and I can have God in my life all the time. He's always there. Uh, the second step prayer uh, is hidden in how it works, and a lot of people that I hear in, at home and places I've lived don't know that prayer is there. We ask for his protection and care with complete abandon. It's read in almost every meeting that I go to at home. It takes a lot of nerve to take these steps and do them. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, you have got to take these steps. If you don't take the steps, you can't have what we have. That means that it takes some guts on my part to go ahead and take all these steps and do them the way the big book says. The third step prayer is, uh, you know, is, is um, I have a coffee mug that has it on it. And uh, at one meeting I go to at home, they recite the third step prayer sometime during the, the meeting so that we all are participating in the third step because it says to say the prayer with somebody else. Uh, the fourth step has five prayers in it. The fifth step has a, uh, I'm asking God to come to the meeting with me while I'm talking to somebody else. I'm going to a retreat next week. And I, I go there because there's a, a priest at the retreat who knows how to invite God to the fifth step meeting that I'm going to participate in because I, I'm the kind of guy that if they ask me to say grace I don't know what to say you know I, I don't know how to say it right I can't talk pretty like that so if I go there the priest will say it for me but I've got to have invite God to the meeting to do a fifth step I've got my fifth step all worked out and the sixth step prayer is the gratitude prayer because it says in there after I do a fifth step I'm supposed to go home and meditate for an hour and that is the sixth step. And in the prayer of the sixth step says, uh, I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know him better. It's the only prayer in the big book that says thank you. And uh, all the other ones are asking for something. But that prayer means so much to me because I do know him better by the time I get to that step. I am ready to take the seventh step. It doesn't say I have to be perfect. It says that I get rid of just enough of my selfishness and dishonesty that I can go out into the world and participate and be helpful to somebody. And there's not a person in AA, that, uh, there's not a person here today that can't find some newcomer that's got less sobriety than you've got and help him. It's so simple. We, you can see misery in every AA room you go to. I spent years looking for all the uh, pompous jackasses and people I don't like, which is a total waste of time. I need to learn how to be tolerant and loving of all people. And, and so I think that who can go to an AA meeting without learning how to be tolerant? The people, people talk too long. They talk forever. They say the same thing they said last week. Well, if you don't like it, go across town and go to another meeting. You know, they're all over the place. And... Uh, and the steps started to be a functional part of my life, and it really has made an enormous difference to me. And uh, uh, the uh, seventh step prayer is the, the action of the seventh step says, help me as I go out from here. Something I've never wanted to do. I've got to go out and participate. I've got to start doing the things that I always said, gee, if I were young enough, I'd be doing that, you know. And I, I do foolish things now. I'm over 70, and last summer 
I went over to the Uganda River near Pittsburgh and uh, with a family, there were 30 of us, and they said the little kids were going to get on the whitewater rafting and just puddle around for six hours, and then the adults were going to get in the larger boats and go down the river and you might get a little wet. So I got in with the adults because I didn't want to piddle around, and I went down and I was, it was a six-hour trip. I was thrown out of the boat uh, six times. I had no idea what they, I didn't even wear a helmet. And... Uh, they had a movie of it, and they said, uh, the, the voiceover on the movie, because they know where all the boats are going to tip over, says, and there goes Santa Fe's third swim this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, believe me, it is not something to do drunk. <laughs> if you go over there, make sure you're sober before you get there. And the um, eighth step and nice step in making amends to people they've been very difficult but once you you feel so good once they're over with I still have to make amends because I still screw up and uh, then in the tenth step uh, this is spacey stuff and I love it you know I've been waiting for this all my life everybody says uh, life sucks and you better get used to the real world and come down off that big cloud because you're you're going to crash and, and you better get used to it because that's the way life is <laughs> And just be good. If you didn't take a drink, you're a winner. Well, that's not good enough for me. In the uh, second chapter, it says I can be, I can be uh, catapulted into the fourth dimension. That's a slingshot. And then in the next chapter, it says that I can be rocketed into the fourth dimension. That's faster. <laughs> I want to go there. I've wanted to go to the fourth dimension all my life, you know? When I was, uh, I lived in Ithaca sober for about five years, and my partner up there was the son-in-law of Rod Serling, you know. And I thought, I haven't finally made it, you know. Da, 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 da. <laughs> in the tenth step, it says you uh, will have intuitive sixth sense. That sounds pretty good. I was told all my life you're not supposed to. Women have intu- intuition. Men don't have it. There's another place in the fourth chapter that says you will take spiritual flight out of this world. Wow! <laughs> Because my world really sucked when I got here. I didn't want to be in this world. And in the, I bring this in, and I don't want to be reading and preaching and all that stuff. But there is a place here that I just love because I've used it many times with people. There was a, a new drunk had just fallen off of a bus in Denver that was at a meeting that I was at after I started feeling good about three years into it. And he was, uh, he'd fallen off the bus, he was 21 years old, and he robbed a grocery store, he got out of jail, came to an AA meeting, thought he ought to quit drinking. I, stipped, I wrote this paragraph and stuck it in his pocket. We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems. You know, what are the kind of problems you got? I didn't know then. The same readiness to change our point of view. We're having trouble with personal relationships. Mm-hmm. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We're a prey. Prey, you know, the lion goes out and eats the little dick dick. Uh, you're a prey. I was a prey. I was the victim. I was a prey to misery and depression. No matter where I went, you know, I used to walk down the streets in uh, uh, Denver uh, with my suit on, and they were having these peace parades back in the 60s, and they would pick me out on the sidewalk and say, screw you very much, sir. And I'd think, why me? And then right after that, a pigeon would shit on me. <laughs> we, we couldn't make a living. Uh-huh. We're having, we have a feeling of uselessness. We're full of fear. We're unhappy. We couldn't be of any real help to other people. That summed up my whole life. That's an alcoholic. And I, put, I wrote this down and stuck it in his pocket. He went home and I put my number on it. He called me and said, how did you know? 
How did Bill know? You know, that's our life. And I don't have to have that anymore. I can take spiritual flight out of this world. There's a, uh, I think it was here in Cincinnati, somebody gave me something very precious. Uh, uh, it was a big sign that says to keep your head in the clouds with God. It was framed in, in old English, and I, I've got that. And uh, that means so much to me. It, it contradicts that line that you've got to come down out of the clouds. Stay up in the clouds. You're supposed to. Uh, but Jonathan Livingston Siegel, I don't know if you ever remember that little book, but he, he kept flying faster and faster and faster and faster. He finally met the golden uh, seagull up in the sky who told him he could stay there if he wanted to and be protected by this big golden seagull. Or he could go back on the beach and teach the other seagulls to fly. So he went back to the beach. That's what we do. It's a... Uh, this book has so many options for you. And in the, uh, page 100, it says, if you work with another person and you're even willing to believe that there's a God, you will both find yourself in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. That means if I work with a new alcoholic, he's not only going to change, I'm going to change. I'm going to be in a new and wonderful world. And, and that works. I came here uh, three years ago, and I don't know if the man, that because uh, I don't remember, I was speaking, and I don't remember who he is. He may be here in the room today, but it was one of the, here in Cincinnati was one of the most dramatic events of my whole AA life. Uh, after, when the meeting was over that afternoon, uh, this guy came up to me, he was about my age, and I, I think he had about 20 years sobriety. You may be here today, and I appreciate what you did. He, uh, it was at the Hilton Hotel over in Covington, and he said, uh, come on with me, Bruce, because he knew my name. And he walked down a corridor, to a, a, a hotel room and I didn't know what he was doing he didn't tell me and we all walked in there were two guys there that looked like uh, blue collar workers young men I hope they're still here today I kind of guess I, I, I just know these two guys are sober and he said uh, let's all get down on our knees and uh, so we did and he said Bruce say the third step prayer and I did and then he asked the two guys each individually to say the third step prayer in their own words and they did and uh that's got to be one of the most highly charged emotional experiences I've ever had in AA. Uh, we stood up, said the Lord's Prayer. I've never seen those three men since. I have a, a feeling deep in my gut that they're sober today. It was really powerful. Uh, those things don't happen very often, but they happen, if they happen at all, if they happen ever, they mean so much to me as an alcoholic because it, it shows in some small way this program does work that they're not kidding about all this stuff and the 12th step uh, having had a spiritual awakening if you listen closely when people read that more than half the time people will say as a result of these steps as if well one of the things you might get is a spiritual experience it's not it says the result that's the singular result of my taking those steps is I'm going to get a spiritual experience and I really believe in that with all my heart because when I try it out and I go out in the world like seven steps says and try to help somebody I, I just have never been able to express uh, strongly enough how good that makes me feel that I'm finally given the privilege of being of some use to somebody I can find them in an AA room because pain shows all over the face of an alcoholic. A man saw pain on my face, took me to a meeting. I wouldn't be here today had he not. Uh, I uh, choke up on uh, the good things. Uh, I've had a couple thoughts here of good things that have happened to me that I'm not going to relate to you. Um, but uh, AA has been a wonderful, wonderful experience and a great journey. I... Uh, had to move from, uh, after my divorce, my first divorce, I met a, a woman uh, who was, I used to eat breakfast in this diner, and I'd, she was 25 years younger than I was, and uh, 
I, could, I didn't notice her. I noticed her, you know. But, <laughs> but she was really pretty, and I didn't think that, that the look she was giving me was real, but it was real, you know, and it took me about six months to catch on. So um, we went off to New Mexico together, and uh, we got married, and I had a, a, a wonderful, wonderful experience with her for about uh, seven years. We're still very good friends. And uh, uh, in New Mexico, uh, I uh, was in a town, Farmington, New Mexico, which is... Uh, about 40,000 people and there too we had just one meeting in town and they they too decided there shouldn't be another meeting because it wouldn't be enough revenue to support the second meeting and I met somebody in Minneapolis from Farmington that said there's about 17 meetings in Farmington now there's over 50 meetings in Boulder so you don't have to uh, restrict the membership of your meeting there's enough drunks around to go around Uh, and uh, we left there and uh, I wanted an urban experience so I went to Detroit for uh, I moved into downtown Detroit for a year and went to AA meetings there. And again, I, I learned things every time I moved that the urgency of, uh, of these steps uh, to get on with your life with the third step and, and get out of all that selfishness and, and start to build something that's positive. It comes to, across so plainly in a town that's so desolate as downtown Detroit. I got a, a lot out of that. And then I moved to uh, Syracuse and uh, that's where we burned the church down. So uh, then I left there and uh, went to uh, New York City for, you know, if I'm going to have an Arabic experience, why not go the whole route? And uh, I was in New York City for five years, and it was, again, exciting. Uh, it was everything it was cracked up to be. I, I didn't have any nerve to do it for about a year. But after I got used to the city and, and got assured that not everybody on the street's going to murder you, uh, it really was fun. Uh, one of the kicks I got in New York was, uh, again, related to AA. You'd sit in the subways and someone in New York, they'd sneeze. And everybody in the subway car, all these tough guys that I was afraid would, you know, stab me, said, God bless you. <laughs> that the world does believe in God. And, uh, and there's so many uh, real evidences of, of, of this God belief around me. That, I, that my fear and my cynicism really needs to be pushed aside. Dr. Bob's last message, uh, not only is it about love and service, but he said three things that uh, this is a very simple program. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes that may be good for the scientific mind, but have absolutely no purpose here. Very good point, because I don't go to A for therapy. I go to A to learn about God in my own life and how to help somebody. Uh, the, another point he made, and for me it's terribly important, and uh, you could probably notice it. I, I, the four years I spent in that military school made me a cynic because I, it was self-protection. Um, I still am a terrible cynic, and I laugh at inappropriate things. Uh, but then someone pointed out to me that almost all of your stand-up comics are cynics. But you've got to watch your tongue, and Bob said that in his last speech. If you must use that errant member of the tongue, use it with love and kindness towards your fellow human being. And uh, so you, it's all right for my, I'll never change my sense of humor, but I don't have to slash people all to pieces anymore. It's not necessary. And I did that a lot when I was drunk. And uh, from New York, uh, I was sent, I'm, as I said, I was an architect, and I was sent up to Ithaca, New York, to uh, do some work at Cornell. And the commute between New York City and Ithaca was too much, so I moved to uh, Scranton, which is halfway between Pennsylvania. And uh, I've uh, lived there now longer than I've ever lived anywhere, and uh, I call it my home. In, um, in all these travels, I've been in eight different cities, and it gets more, uh, I warn you, it gets more and more difficult to move. Uh, 
This happened to me when I was 10 years sober. I went to Omaha for, to a meeting, and someone picked me up at the hotel, took me to a meeting, and they said, uh, they said this a lot of meetings, is anybody here for their first meeting or, or visiting from out of town? I had 10 years sobriety. I was visiting from out of town. I put my hand up. They assumed I was a newcomer and talked to me as a newcomer for the whole meeting. And when the, when the meeting was over, the guy that really ran it, because you could tell he was the chairman every week, came over and he says, uh, he had nine years sobriety. He says, how long you been, uh, how many days you got? And I said, I'm sober 10 years. He looked at me, totally indignant, and he said, prove it. <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to prove it, because, uh, you know, whenever you expose yourself to other people, you're going to get judged. So what? It doesn't hurt. It's, it's okay. Let it go. Because I do the same thing. And uh, I've learned that when I moved to Scranton, I had 22 years of sobriety. And, uh, you know, there's people in town that say, we don't know that. <laughs> and so, no, you don't know that. And nobody knows. Uh, I know it. my truth is, is for myself, you know. It's in my heart. I know. And all you do, too. You know right to the minute when you stop drinking. So do I. I don't know when you quit drinking, but I know when I did. I, I've got a little piece of paper that says so because they picked me up that day and wrote the time of day on it. They <laughs> took me off to jail and, uh, and they didn't give me anything while I was there. And so um, there's a thing I think you, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, they, read it, they read it at Diana's funeral uh, about faith, hope, and love. Uh, I, I hear this a lot, and I think A has a lot to do with that, that I come here with the hope, not faith. I come here with no faith. I come with the hope that maybe something good will happen if I go here. And then I go through the steps and I learn a little bit about faith. It says in the fourth chapter, if you're even willing to believe there's a God, that's all it takes. And then I ask you another question. God either is or he isn't. What's it going to be? And my sponsor said to me, Bruce, what's it going to be? Huh, me? Because I, I didn't read the book and answer questions. Uh, so I said, well, yeah, sure, he, he is. And he told me that's all it took. And it, what, he was right. He was absolutely right. And then uh, I'll close. Because, uh, 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 you, you know, you've, gotta, you've been drinking coffee like I have, and you've got to go to the John. Um, but uh, it's pretty obvious uh, what I do now for a living. Uh, I'm uh, Santa Claus. <laughs> And I've uh, been doing that now for about uh, seven years. Uh, I've been Santa Claus in Chicago. I've been Santa Claus in downtown Philadelphia. I've been Santa Claus in um, Exton, Pennsylvania, in Princeton. And uh, uh, each year, because I'm not married, uh, I have my contract that says I'll go wherever they send me, because I don't care. You just sit in your throne and you're important. You know, I love that. And uh, people say they're powerless over people, places, and things. Don't ever believe that. I've played Santa Claus now for, this is going to be my eighth or ninth year, and parents will come up with a child and say, tell Santa Claus what a little brat you are. <laughs> they have a pudgy little four-year-old, and they say, don't sit on Santa's lap, you'll break his leg. That is enormous power of cruelty. Getting drunk and driving your car drunk, you have enormous power, horsepower in your car to kill. As a drunk you, and a drug addict, you have enormous power to destroy your relationships and your family. So to say that you're powerless over people, places, and things is screwed up. If you've got the power to do evil, you've got the power to do good. It's as simple as that. And uh, 
these little kids, when they come up and talk to me, uh, they have faith that I don't have. I wish I had the faith that a child has. They sit on my lap and they absolutely love me to death because they think I'm Santa Claus. You know, after a few years, they have convinced me I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> and uh, that's real faith. If I could have that same faith toward my God in the same relationship, my life would be the joy that those children feel because they're with me. And I can have that. It says so in this book. I can be happy, joyous, and free. Misery is... God does not make misery. We created ourselves, so don't do it. Children don't have... Uh, it's, it's, believe, I don't want to get biblical, but I'm going to. It says... <laughs> I, I think Christ said something to the effect that you've got to have the mind of a child or else you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. I see those children. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of happiness. I want it in my life. AA has provided me with an avenue to find it. And... Uh, it's precious, it means a lot to me, and I'm willing, it says in the book, you can't keep it unless you give the whole product away. And uh, I travel a good deal. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing for the last three years, uh, there's a little farm up in Connecticut called High Watch that Bill Wilson started with Marty Mann in 1939, and it's been in, uh, they've had a chapel service there every day since they started it. And it takes 49 guests. They've had big trouble a few years ago with the state of Connecticut because they, uh, rehab centers didn't come in existence until the mid-70s, and they wanted to close the place and have it conform to state laws on rehab centers. And they fought them, and they, don't, they kept it exactly as Bill started it. You go up there, you go to 5A meetings a day, uh, and there's uh, men and women, just as it's always been, up in the hills of Connecticut. You have to stay there for three weeks, or you can go there for R&R. And uh, I've been privileged to go there three months a year to teach the big book uh, once a day, for, which is just exactly what I've been doing for the 30 years or the 29 years since my sponsor taught, went through the book with me. It, two people together reading the big book together get so much out of it that you don't get reading it by yourself. You can't miss. These, the words in this, were, I think, were directed by God, and it's available even in the new edition. <laughs> Uh, you, you can have it, and uh, I have a, a, a case of them in the back of my car here at the hotel. I'd be glad to give anybody here that doesn't have one uh, a, a free big book uh, at the end of this meeting. Just check me. My, my license number out there is Lazy8. Uh, very few people have caught on to what that means, but uh, Lazy8, if you're from Colorado uh, and had a ranch and were branding cows, you would turn the 8 on its side. And that is the infinity symbol. And the infinity symbol is the symbol of the fourth dimension. And uh, alcoholics aren't complicated, but we should. <laughs> we sure are screwed up. <laughs> and I am I really not, I, I'm so much more comfortable now that it's over than I was when I started. Because... Uh, it's been wonderful to be here with, with so many screwed up people in Cincinnati again. And I, I really thank you for the privilege of letting me speak. Uh, thank you very much.